Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. Stephen Hawking, who died in March 2018, was no ordinary scientist. His book, a Brief History of Time was an international bestseller, and he became a very unusual sort of international celebrity, even starring in an episode of The Simpsons. But he was, above all, a brilliant and original theoretical physicist. Here's Andrew Ponson speaking on The Naked Scientist Show, A Brief History of Stephen Hawking. I think he really encapsulated a kind of freedom of thought. And I think it sounds slightly strange to say this, but even amongst theoretical physicists, there's a, there's a danger that people get stuck in a rut and work on one thing for their entire career. Something that Stephen Hawking showed very clearly is that it's possible to actually jump around and think about many different things and not be afraid of the traditional boundaries. Uh, and there are relatively few people who really show that to us. Stephen Hawking's family recently donated his entire archive to the nation, from juvenile scribbles to scientific papers. They will be stored and curated in the University of Cambridge Library, so we thought we'd take this opportunity to discuss the legacy of Stephen Hawking, his life and his work. With me to do just that is Marika Taylor, Professor of Mathematical Science at the University of Southampton, as a PhD student, Marika was supervised by the great man. And joining us from California is the philosopher and anthropologist of science and technology, Professor Elaine Miale, author of the book, Hawking Incorporated. Marika, give us an insight into the man. Who was Stephen Hawking? 
So Stephen was somebody who was absolutely fascinated by the fundamental questions about the nature of the universe, how how the universe be- began. He was somebody who had um, a great sense of humor. People forget, you know, people think of him as a very serious sort of hardworking person, but he also had an immensely mischievous sense of humor. He loved to work with uh, young people, young scientists, uh, work together with them, you know, talk his ideas through with them. And Elaine, your book, Hawking Incorporated, makes the point that his singularity of mind could not have flourished without the powerful support network that he enjoyed. How did this develop? I think what I try to do as a philosopher is try to understand how Stephen Hawking was able to do what he was doing and try to tackle the question of how do we do theoretical physics? Is it just because he was a big mind? He was, of course, but he was also not able to manipulate with his hand. He was not able to calculate and do equations. He was obviously able to communicate, but it was more uh, difficult. And I think Marika can explain better how she was working with him. But for me, that was the, the fundamental question is how do we think? How do we create? How do we have new ideas? And how do we become a theoretical physicist? When you ask me how this network developed, I think slowly we had more students and more support. And the argument of my book is to say that to a certain extent, all scientists are Stephen Hawking, are able to do what they do because they have this large network of support around them. And there is an institution and students and money and resources. You both mentioned humour. I'm just intrigued because on the whole, PhD supervisors, Marika, aren't known for their sense of humour. So did his humour come out in the way that he supervised you or or in what way did you experience it? I think Stephen's humour came out really in everything he did. When you live as he did with such you know, disabilities, you really had to have things to keep you going. And one of the things that obviously kept him going was his family, was his love of science. But it was also, you know, that humour, seeing the positive side of things. He even turned his disadvantage in communication, you know, the fact that he was so slow in communicating by typing out word by word, he turned that almost into a positive by becoming extremely good at making punchy one-line sort of remarks, you know, where his humour sort of came through. So I would say it just came out in everything he did. And it's, you know, if you ask me what's, what are the first things I think about him, one is the science and the second is it's the humour, that, you know, impish spirit that came through with him. I would agree with that. And I think it is a way of showing his singularity. And in particular, when he was giving a talk, I remember, and someone asked him a question and he took... 10 minutes to respond and he just responded yes or something like that. The the entire uh, crowd laughed and I think it was his way as well of uh, not being uh, trapped either in the questions they were asking, his way of showing that he could play with, I think it was difficult for him to communicate, but he still had a lot of freedom and his humor was his way of, of showing that, I think. For many people, of course, it's his voice that they're going to remember. Or when they hear the name Stephen Hawking, they immediately think about the speech software that became so world famous. And he exploited that, didn't he? Just as you said, Elaine, you know, he played on that. But it must have been from a teaching point of view, Marika, it must have been quite a challenge to be patient enough for him to explain what he needed to explain. 
No, absolutely. Working with Stephen was certainly very challenging. Even 20 years ago, when his speech was faster, it got much slower towards the end of his life. So, you know, the usual way that theoretical physics works is that you have this idea of something that you want to explore. And then you have to translate that into very concrete kind of mathematical steps, mathematical calculations that need to be done. And You know, usually with a supervisor to a student, you could be very explicit about that. You'd break it down into lots of tiny steps. Stephen needed really very good students around him who could kind of infer what he meant with very little information. So try and minimize that communication. So, you know, he would type something and you'd almost jump in and say, "Okay, so is this what I need to do? Is this what we should be doing? And you could see that sometimes he'd get very frustrated because you, you said the wrong thing, right? You were going off in the wrong direction. You'd see it on his face and then you kind of, you know, pull back and go into a different direction. But often you could jump in and save him communicating by saying, okay, I, I see I need to do this, this, this. And then he could kind of delete his words and then start with the next step. But absolutely, it was a slow process. Um, so you could sit there, almost with your pad of paper, doing your calculation And then every 10 minutes or so, you know, he'd have his sentences ready to start communicating. You know, you'd almost be doing part of the calculation. You'd be doing something in the meantime. I also believe that he was surrounded by very smart students that were able actually to work with him very well and do a lot of work as well. So my question in my book was also how much with the author of an article in this context And uh, without uh, getting rid, of course, of Professor Hawking's insights, but I think it was also a very collective work in a way. I think in theoretical physics these days, it always is collective, the alphabetical order of the author list, which is really representing the fact that you work collectively and you do different kinds of contributions at different times. So sometimes the input will be more conceptual and sometimes it will be more computational. And usually I would say that younger authors on the paper, the early career researchers on a paper, are often doing more of the calculations and the senior people are doing you know, more of the conceptual things. So that's the way I work with my own students. And Stephen wasn't different in that. I think the difference was that you know, before I give things to my students, I can take it to a certain stage. So I can sit with pen and paper and do some of the calculations and see, is this going to work? Or if they come back with a surprising result, I can go through it and see, is it right or wrong? And that was much harder for Stephen. He could do a lot in his head. So the things that he had studied in detail in the 1960s, where he was still able to write, where he had done lots of detailed calculations, he could do those in his head. It became harder for him for things where he had learned that physics after he became too disabled to, to write it on paper where he hadn't really done the calculations step by step himself. And he was in some sense much more reliant on the person who was doing the calculation. And he had to do kind of checks at every stage. So the other thing you do when you're looking at somebody else's calculation is you do all kinds of intuitive checks, you know, sanity checks. You know, we do this when we do just school level physics, actually, that You know, you look at the size of the answers. So, you know, if you calculate the mass of something and it comes out to be 10 tons or something and, you you know, somebody was meant to have dropped it, you say, well, that just doesn't look right, right? It's far too big. And so you do all those kinds of checks. And that was what Stephen was doing as well. You know, he was looking at each stage and saying, this really doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem to sort of fit with what you would expect. He would almost be testing it with thought experiments at every stage. 
But he had that frustration. You could see his frustration that, you know, he couldn't just get out that piece of paper and do the calculation himself. I completely uh, agree with that. And what you said at the beginning, because I think it was one of the the arguments I tried to develop in my book, is to say that Hawking was not different than any other physicist in a way, but because of his disability and because he had to delegate a lot, as well as what you are explaining, and a lot of his students were doing maybe more sometimes, he was showing what we don't see normally which is that it's a very collective work. So there was nothing fundamentally different in his way of working. For me, my intuition as well was that maybe he was able to manipulate in his head also sometimes more than other people because he had to retain in his head some of the, the calculation is what you said, or diagrams he was manipulating because, again, he couldn't draw them, he couldn't put them on paper. And so I think that's uh, very interesting aspect as well. And he said he was using a lot of the Penrose diagrams in particular, that he was able to manipulate wonderfully. Maybe he was not able to do certain things that other physicists can do because they can use their hands and can do some calculations. I would like to ask what you might call an uneasy question, which is about his disability, which to an extent led to his celebrity. Did it give him undue scientific credibility or am I being harsh? I don't think his disability really gave him undue scientific credibility. I think if you just took him as a scientist in his own right, we would still be talking about the wonderful work that he did, particularly in the 60s and 1970s. So right from the beginning of his career, you know, the understanding the beginning of the universe, you know, the quantum physics of black holes. These are very much things which are still dominating the agenda in theoretical physics 40 years later. So he is absolutely up there as one of the top physicists. I do think that you know there's a certain tendency for the public to almost want to have you know one figure that they call supreme, right? So everybody knows Einstein, but they don't know all of the other people who were great physicists at the beginning of the 20th century. And of course, there are many, many distinguished theoretical physicists around the world, as well as Stephen, who've made extremely important contributions. I mean, just to name one, Edward Witten, the sort of father of string theory. You know, the general public wouldn't know this particular person. They know Stephen because of his book, because of the kind of captivation of his circumstances, you know, that that really captivated the public. So I don't think it was that he was overvalued by the public. I think it's that the public didn't realize that there are other equally distinguished theoretical physicists. I can communicate better now than before I lost my voice. A famous words or famous sentence by Stephen Hawking. He enjoyed the celebrity status. He enjoyed the Simpsons, the Star Trek. I suppose the question is, what do we do with that? How do we use that now in terms of getting to know the man Stephen Hawking? I think that his enjoyment of sort of popular culture really makes him much more relatable. It makes people really understand that there was a man underneath that scientist. So he was extremely, you know, happy or proud of being in The Simpsons. He had, you know, beautiful pictures that he had from that show. He also enjoyed, of course, being in Big Bang Theory and telling Sheldon how to do science. It just makes him, I think, much more relatable. So Stephen, whenever he gave a popular talk, you know, you would say, well, this is absolutely exhausting. I know that when I give popular talks, I find it very draining. It's almost like playing a game of tennis or going for a run. But actually for Stephen, it would almost leave him more hyper. And he would absolutely want to go out. He'd want to go out to, to, you know, a nice kind of restaurant or bar or even, as Ellen has described, a nightclub. So there are stories of him going to nightclubs in Boston 
and just enjoying the music and the atmosphere. And that's absolutely great. I think, again, it's this um, joie de vivre, you know, really grasping life and enjoying it, not just living life, but actually reaching out and, you know, grasping every opportunity. The nightclubs, of course, are the thing that people always remember because it seems quite strange for somebody who couldn't themselves get up and dance. And he couldn't really drink alcohol, for example. He could, you know, he could drink, he would only be able to take very small amounts. But nevertheless, he liked the atmosphere. I guess the normality, right? This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Marika Taylor and Elaine Miele. And we're talking about the legacy of Stephen Hawking and his archive recently donated to the University of Cambridge Library. In the Naked Reflections show, Einstein, Archetypal Genius, Richard Staley expressed these almost mystical thoughts. When Hawking's A Brief History of Time came out in 1988, um, it had a very short biography on the back cover. It went something like Stephen W. Hawking was born on the 8th of January 1942, the 300th anniversary of Galileo Galileo's death. And he holds the Lucasian Chair of Mathematical Philosophy formerly held by Sir Isaac Newton in the University of Cambridge. Um, And when I read that, um, I thought it only needs to finish and will die on the anniversary of Albert Einstein's birth. And in fact, that's what happened. Richard Staley's observation is weirdly unscientific. Hawking seems to have been ambiguous about the existence of God. Was he in some sense a deist or an atheist, as he liked to proclaim? I don't think I would want to jump in and guess or speculate about what Stephen's religious beliefs were. I would say that Stephen often used the word God in a rather abstract sense to say this is unknown, so this was created. When he talked about, you know, does God throw dice into black holes? What he really meant was, as a scientist, we're at the forefront of our understanding. You know, we don't know what the answer to these questions are. So he was not really sort of speculating about the existence or not about a deity. On the other hand, we come back to his sort of mischievous humor and also trying to reach out and captivate people. So clearly, if you make rather provocative statements like that, you actually reach out to people, you get people to notice, they start discussing. And I think some part of his choice to actually throw God into talks, into some of the sentences he used in his books was really about that. So in a way, it made him accessible to people using that language, using metaphors that the ordinary person can understand. Would you agree with that, Elaine? It's a difficult question. I think related to the notion of the idea of God, I think it's the same. It's very difficult, I think, to answer this question and and know exactly what he meant uh, when he used that and what was his religious position even. It would be difficult for me to discuss that, except that I think it's a trope as well in history of science and scientists have used this trope of God and, and trying to uh, relate to the religious dimension. I think regarding the brief history of time, he used a lot of metaphors that were, it seems to be not always original. I think it was a lot of tropes that circulate as well. We're thinking about the cosmonaut falling into black holes, for example, or stuff like that. I think it's, again, big images that are not specially original, but they are circulating, but I think they captured, obviously, uh, the imagination of the public. So they had a role. It sounds like he was a 
great teacher. I was thinking, Marika, as you were speaking earlier about the almost prompting you and your fellow students and postdocs to intervene, to follow his thinking and preempt what he was thinking. And again, in the use of metaphors, we're all teachers. The use of language pedagogically helps our students understand what the concepts are and and challenges. Would that be fair? I think it's fair to say that when he worked with students, he really wanted them to grasp the concepts, move forward as quickly as possible. He did choose his words very, very carefully in everything he did. Now, jumping in when he was trying to say something, that could be tricky, of course, because if you were guessing wrongly, he would get very, very frustrated about it. And, you know, so it was, you know, kind of risky to do. But I think it it was certainly an unusual dynamic. I think if we looked at the sort of dynamic that usually exists between a senior professor and their doctoral student, it would have been perhaps less the student querying. Students were allowed to query Stephen quite a lot. You know, he and I used to disagree quite a lot about ideas for sort of resolving the, the black hole information loss paradox. And he allowed me to critique his ideas on that. Which in retrospect, you know, given that I was, you know, much younger than him, you know, much less distinguished than him, in a sense, listening to the opinion, encouraging to have an opinion, that is a sign of a good teacher, right? Were you right, Marika? This is an interesting one, because I believe that Stephen, in in the last years of his life, very much came round to my way of thinking about what the resolution to the black hole information loss paradox was, which was really about quantum hair around the surface of a black hole. That was the kind of things he was pursuing towards the end of his life. And I'd actually been pursuing for sort of a good decade or so before then. So, but he never actually told me, gosh, you were right. He never conceded that either in private or in public. What's in the archive, the Hawking archive, and what interests you most, Elaine? I was in Cambridge when I was writing my book and I heard that they were building this archive around uh, Stephen Hawking's work. And what I was trying to show again in my research is to show what I call his extended body, which is uh, maybe a a provocation on my part, but showing how these different collectives around him were working to construct his image as Stephen Hawking in part as well, or helping me uh, to work. And the archive, I think, was very interesting for me because I was thinking, what kind of Stephen Hawking are we going to reconstruct based on the archive that he left? And when I arrived there, most of the work was the work that he had already uh, published. And it was raising a lot of interesting questions we are dealing with today, which is, uh, what are we going to do with all the digital uh, papers that scientists have accumulated or all the papers we have today, what does it mean when you can't read what the scientist has written on the margin of a book? Where is Hawking was again my question. And I think that was part of my interrogations around this book as well, is to show that maybe there was something particular in the sense that, of course, it was Stephen Hawking and his celebrity. But behind that, it was also raising a lot of questions we are dealing with today around uh, the digital and what is an author? How can you tell who did what in the context of the creation of a text or a, a book or an article? For me, one of the most interesting things of the archive, I think, will be to showcase to people how science develops. So there's a perception, I think, that, you know, magnificent ideas come out of nowhere. 
And actually, that's not really the way that theoretical physics works. It's kind of lots of missteps going in the wrong direction, realizing it's the wrong direction, and then coming back, trying things, and then, you know, gradually coming forward. So almost, you know, two steps forwards, one step to the side, one step back, and going a little bit in circles. And if you track through Stephen's papers, you will actually be able to see that. You'll be able to see that at times he was going off in the wrong kind of direction. But at the same time, you will see areas where he was actually having the right instinct. 30 years ahead, actually, of, of us really understanding the concept, he was fishing into it. So I think that's going to be, for me, the most interesting thing, if people look at that whole body of work. I agree with Helen, though, that there is going to be reviews of 21st century science, as opposed to science at the beginning of the 20th century. There is very much the challenge that you see the finished article, but you don't see the drafts on the way. So we look at, you know, Einstein's sort of earlier attempts for theories of relativity. We see the manuscripts, we see the letters. We've got that and we understand much more the genesis. But now what you see is often just the finished article. And of course, this is particularly the case with Stephen, because a lot of what was going on was going on in his head. He was working with collaborators and, and, you know, they were doing sort of parts of the calculation. And so the sort of within a particular paper, the route that was taken to get to that final result will perhaps be missing because it's actually been lost. You know, you don't have, you, you see version 100, but you don't see the first 99 versions of the paper because those are sort of lost somewhere else. It reminds me of the saying, you know, originality is 99% perspiration and only 1% brilliance. And I just wonder, and Elaine, I'd like to come back to you because I'm thinking about your point, uh, what do we do with all these digital papers? Um, Because they multiply to such an extent that it's just not possible, is it, to to be able to review them all? It's not possible to see that step-by-step process. So what's your suggestion? What do we do with all these digital papers? I think a lot of people actually are working now uh, on these questions And I think that's what is interesting as well with Stephen Hawking is I think he was a pioneer in a lot of different ways. And I'm thinking just about the software we are using today on our phone that complete our words and our sentences. Uh, Stephen Hawking was the first one actually to use this kind of devices. So for me, he was really uh, the pioneer. What I try to do is this book is a kind of of an archaeology of what we are all becoming fundamentally reliant on technology. And it has a lot of different effects. And so in terms of the digital, I think it's difficult for me to respond because I'm not a specialist, but I think, again, it raises a very interesting question about notions of authorship, how historians are going to work. And we know now that someone who does work on the 16th century in a certain sense has more access than me to a lot of material now because everything is online and I'm an ethnographer and what I do is to follow people or to have access to this kind of data is more difficult for me. That's another aspect we can explore. I'm bound to be asked by listeners to Naked Reflections what you think his place in the pantheon of scientific greats is. I mean, I'm not sure whether it's fair to compare these people, but, you know, he held the same chair as Isaac Newton. He developed Einstein's ideas. You've referred to a number of great physicists. Where do you place? I think it's a very difficult question as well, but I would say that, uh, again, to go back to Professor Hawking's humor, he loved playing with that, I think. 
and putting himself in the, in the tradition of Newton. I think it was important for him to have this chair. And the first time I was able to meet him was to write actually a chapter about his role as a Lucasian chair of professor, Lucasian chair professor of mathematics. Um, and I think that was for him very important. He was surprised, in fact, when he was nominated. But I think it was important for him to have behind him all these great names like Babbage. But I think he's going to stay uh, this amazing figure in the, the public landscape. Did he become more pessimistic towards the end of his life? I don't think he was particularly more pessimistic either about science or about society. I do think towards the end of his life, he felt that he should use his position to actually advocate for things, whether that is the future of the National Health Service, which had looked after him so well. Or, you know, people people often quote, you know, him warning about artificial intelligence. I don't think that's what he was meaning. He wanted society to have conversations about artificial intelligence. He felt that the Internet had taken society by surprise and people hadn't thought through the consequences. And he wanted the conversation to start earlier about artificial intelligence, to think through what the possible consequences could be. That's not pessimism. I think that's actually realistic planning, I would say. So, you know, I, I don't think I would say pessimistic. Actually, the opposite. I would say that he was always looking for the next scientific breakthrough. He was enormously excited by the discovery of gravitational waves, not least because that could have you know, given him the Nobel Prize. Um, Roger Penrose, of course, was awarded the Nobel Prize last year. But, you know, just because for him it opened up a huge number of you know, scientific possibilities, it was going to allow things to be tested with black holes that he perhaps hadn't thought would be tested in his lifetime. So hugely sort of positive and excited about that. And these kinds of things were things that, you know, when he wasn't feeling well, I think actually really kept him going. It was that optimism, that, that spirit that kept him going. The time allotted for this podcast was brief and it has ended. Thanks to my guests, Marika Taylor and Elaine Miele. And thanks to you too, our dear listeners, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource. For example, you can listen to the show about Einstein and many, many others. You may also want to check out podcasts from our friends at The Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more praising discussion and some new guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.